This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I'd like for you to go with me into the gospel according to Mark this evening. The gospel according to Mark. And find, if you would please, chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11. We'll begin reading in verse number 12. Mark chapter number 11 and verse number 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe, that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Our fathers, we come again uh, together to review and study the pages of your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take that which is inspired and inerrant and infallible, and that he would reveal to us as our teacher the great truths of your word, and that as we are confronted with your word, that we would be conformed to your image, that we would bring much glory to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned this morning, there are two separate incidents that are 
interwoven throughout the narrative of the remainder of Mark chapter number 11. And those incidents are, uh, number one, that the Lord Jesus cursed the fig tree, and number two, that the Lord Jesus cleansed the temple. These stories unfold um, and interact, and for our purpose this evening and this morning, we have chosen to look at uh, the the incident or the record of the fig tree which was cursed. And we're taking this thought that we're bringing with us tonight, lessons from the fig tree, lessons from the fig tree. As we saw this morning, the first lesson that we learn from the fig tree is that fruitfulness is expected. Uh, The Lord Jesus saw the fig tree. He was hungry. He went to the fig tree which was filled with leaves, a fig tree filled with leaves by the nature of that tree would have fruit on it. And though it was early in the season, it was not yet the time of the figs, in that area it was not uncommon for uh, figs to to, uh, blossom early and for fruit to be on those trees. And so here he comes to this tree to find it, of course, full of leaves, but without fruit. And the picture here is of the nation of Israel. The Messiah had come to the nation of Israel, a nation that he had planted, a nation that he had blessed, and he rightfully expected fruit. All of the religious activity, all of the political activity among God's people, but yet there was no fruit in their lives. And we saw a great parallel between the condition of Israel and the danger that we all face as Christians because we need to understand that like Israel, we, the church of the living God, have been placed here. And we've been called out from this world to be a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. And uh, he has created us. The Bible said we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And so It is God's will that we as believers should not just simply exist, but that we should bring forth fruit. And as we looked in John chapter 15, the Lord said, much fruit. And as we bring forth fruit in our lives, and Galatians tells us, Galatians chapter 5 tells us uh, what that fruit is like. It is love, it is joy, it is peace, it is long-suffering, it is gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. It's not just like that. That's what it is. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And as we examine our own lives, as we look beneath the leaves of our religious exterior, do we find the fruit of the Spirit? And the Lord Jesus Christ is right to probe and to look into our lives, and he is looking for fruit. And as we abide in him, the Bible teaches us that his life in us will produce this fruit. This is not something that we can produce on our own. This is something that is produced as a result of our vital connection, our vital relationship, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit in us, in our mortal bodies, and he produces fruit in our lives. And so we saw this morning that fruitfulness is expected. As we go forward this evening, we'll see the second thing that we 
or the second lesson that the fig tree teaches us, and that is that faith is to be expressed. Faith is to be expressed. Notice, if you would, please, uh, in verse number 20, and in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. So remember now, the Lord cursed the fig tree. They go into the temple. He drives out the money changers. He reproves them, and they go back outside of Jerusalem. And the next morning, as they're coming back into Jerusalem, they pass by the place where they saw the fig tree. And when they passed by, they saw the fig tree, verse 20, dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Now there's a great promise given to us in this passage, is there not? That when we pray, when we desire, and we ask God, he will deliver what we ask for. And that's a wonderful promise, but there's also a little bit of peril here because if we do not, if we take this passage of Scripture out of context and apply it to the foolish desires of our sinful hearts, then we're going to find that the Lord is not about granting the foolish desires of sinful hearts. Now, we have to remember that though we are redeemed, we still have flesh. And there's a battle that is going on in our lives. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And what we must acknowledge is is that the only way in which we will experience the victory that Christ has won over sin and the flesh is as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we are vitally connected to him, as we walk in obedience to his word, as we begin to delight in him. The Bible said that if we would delight in the Lord, he would give us the very desires of our hearts. That means that he will place his desire for our lives into our hearts. And if we're going to bear fruit, as we saw this morning in Psalm chapter 1 and verse number 3, we have to delight in the law of the Lord. As we delight in God, as we take pleasure in him and in his word and in his law, his life flowing through us produces within us a desire for the things that he desires. Now, James warns us of the danger of missing the mark in our prayer lives. He said, you ask and you have not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. The word lust there means desire. And so he's speaking of a carnal fleshly desire. And so he's, he's warning us that we can miss the mark in our prayer life. We can shoot for a goal but miss the mark because the mark is directed not by the desires of God but by the desires of our sinful, carnal 
flesh. And so we cannot mishandle or misappropriate God's truth concerning this matter. But when we bring our desires and our requests in line with the desires of the Lord, we will not miss the mark and we will not mishandle this promise that God has given to us. Now, the Lord, as he, as he speaks to the disciples, and particularly here, of course, unto Peter, they, they, they notice this fig tree the next morning has, has withered. And not only has it withered, it has dried up from its roots. There were, there were no signs of life in this tree whatsoever. Now, normally if a tree dies, we don't know about it for quite a while because it takes a long time for the leaves to wither and to fade and to dry away. But here immediately we find, the disciples find, this fig tree is completely withered and dried up. And it, 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 it amazes them to such degree that they call attention to it and they speak to the Lord concerning it. And the Lord said to them, have faith in God. Now, who is Jesus? He's God. He's God the Son. He is God the very God. He considered it, Philippians chapter 2, not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he is equal to God. He's God the Son, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in the the, the, uh, triune being, the trinity of God. And so here he is. God in the flesh, saying to his disciples, have faith in God. I decreed it so. Why would you be amazed that it happened? Because I said it was going to happen. Have faith in God. In other words, believe in me. This faith is not something that the disciples possess as a result of their ability to work up faith or as their ability to believe. This faith is possessed by those who have confidence not in us, not in our ability to muster up enough faith, but in the ability of the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the Son of God. And the Lord is saying to his disciples here, understand that you must have faith in God. The Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. You know that you and I, if we're going to please God, must have faith in God. We must believe God. We must trust God. And so here the disciples are amazed, and the Lord Jesus Christ gives them a lesson on faith. Now, he uses a, a, familiar, a familiar phrase that they would have heard many times over in their lives, and he uses it in uh, verse number 23. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not d- doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Here we find 
the Lord uses this phrase, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed. This statement, to move mountains, was a well-known and widely used phrase in those days, in that culture, to describe overcoming that which was impossible to overcome. Here we find the power to move those barriers resides not, as I said just a moment ago, in us or our ability to muster up some amount of faith. But that that barrier is removed by the Lord. Faith is not reliant upon our ability, but reliance upon his ability and character. Uh, John MacArthur says it this way, the theological component of prayer is not concerned with the nature of personal faith, but the character of the living God. Have you ever heard someone misuse this passage and they say, well, if you had enough faith, then your loved one would have been healed. Well, I think about that man who came and he wanted his child healed, and the Lord said, if you believe, all things are possible. And he said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Does it sound like he had much faith, does it? <clears throat> so the miracle was not dependent upon that man's ability to believe. The miracle, the power, was dependent upon that man's acknowledgement that he was dealing with the one who could heal his daughter. And he was very honest to say, Lord, I believe but there's always unbelief. And by the way, whenever we are called upon to exercise faith, that faith will always be accompanied by fear and by doubt. That is the struggle of faith. But when we learn to put our faith in God and trust him in the face of the doubt, in the face of the fear, then we are exercising faith, and it doesn't take much faith to move mountains, friends. It doesn't take much faith. MacArthur goes on to say, to have an effective prayer life requires trusting God's power, purpose, promise, plans, and will. You see, we have to put our faith in his ability. Is God able to move mountains? Well, sure he is. He's able to create them. He's able to move them. He can move the Smoky Mountains anywhere he pleases. God is able to do that. And so our confidence must rest, our faith must rest in God. And so what we find is that faith operates the engine of God which produces the power to move mountains and perform the impossible. If I had a, a really nice... Ford F-150 pickup truck or a really nice Toyota 4Runner, which I have thanks to you. If you didn't give me the key, I couldn't operate it. Can I tell you that faith is the key that cranks the engine and provides the power for that machine to move down the road? And friend, God has the power. The key is our faith in him. That's what ignites it. And that's what fires the engine, and that is what provides the horsepower that is needed in our lives. Believing God, 
you see the second lesson here is that faith is to be expressed. Jesus, when he came to this earth, when he walked among those Jews, he found no faith or very little faith. In fact, oftentimes he used the the people of the lands around about them, the Canaanites, to say, I've not found faith like this among my people. I've not found faith like this in Israel. In fact, Jesus said that when he comes again, he says, shall the Son of Man find faith on the earth? Oh, I hope he finds faith among this body of believers here at Tabernacle. You see, when we come to God, we come believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We're looking to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Friend, we know that our God is in heaven, that he has a plan and a purpose, that he has the power to accomplish it, and that he has said to us, if we'll get in line with him, if we'll desire what he desires, then the prayer that gets to heaven is the prayer that starts in heaven. When we get a hold of heaven's heart and heaven's mind and we utter to heaven the desires of heaven, God said, I will hear and I will answer their prayer. And I will move mountains. Faith is to be expressed. I want you to remember here that we're in the last days of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. He is preparing his disciples to pray in faith because they haven't had to do that before. You know why they haven't had to do that before? Because he's been with them. They've been seeing it every day. They've been watching his power. They've been marveling in his teaching. But soon he's going to be separated from them. He's going to die for them. He's going to go up into the heavens, and he is going to uh, there uh, dwell with his father, interceding on our behalf, and they are going to be left on this earth to minister, and so too are we at this hour, and he's still there on the throne. He still has power to work, and we have to learn like the disciples had to learn to exercise faith in God. So we have to have audacious, bold faith to believe that God is able to move mountains. Now, notice what he said. He said, don't doubt, but believe. Don't doubt, but believe. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what things, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Now, I just want to just stop here and give you some guiding principles for your prayer. Some guiding principles for your prayer. Remember, the danger is that we could ask amiss. And the disciples who will rely upon prayer and the power of God and faith in the days ahead will look back upon their time with Jesus and all that he did, all that they saw, all that they heard, and they will have confidence in their heart because of the past victories that have been wrought, because of the past provisions that they have enjoyed, because of past healings and and the past deliverances that they had witnessed, they will trust God for the future. By the way, hasn't God been good to us in the past? I mean, have we not been in times where mountains stood in our way and God moved those mountains on our behalf? Then why should we doubt him for the future? You see, when we come to a mountain, we shouldn't shrug our shoulders and 
get despondent and get a wee bit whiny and say, here's another mountain. I don't know how we're going to make it over this one. And there's always somebody nearby to say, you're never going to make it over that one. You might as well not even try it. You'll never scale that peak. And so we need some guiding principles for our prayer. Let me give you just, oh, let me give you five of them quickly. Humility. A guiding principle for our prayer is humility. You know what humility does? It acknowledges our inability to discern what we truly need. Sometimes we, we, we see God dealing with us and we, we come to the mountain and we don't like the mountain and we want God to, to deal with the mountain in a certain way. And we fail to see how that God will use the mountain in our lives. God desires to use the mountain to produce fruit in us. Remember, the fig tree is barren. And so God will use the mountain to reveal to us our inability so that we will look to his ability. God will use the mountain to bring us to him in his presence so that we will pray. Our prayer life gets stagnant, does it not? I mean, when we're facing a mountain, our prayer life can be red hot. But when we're on the plains and everything's smooth, our prayer life can get cold and indifferent in a heartbeat. And so God can use the mountains. And humility acknowledges our inability to discern what we truly need and our inability to provide it for ourselves. Because as, we, as we've heard and, and been reminded of many times, we often think we can handle this. There's a problem. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. This is what I would do. If I were you, I would address it this way. And when it comes to us, we say, well, here's what we're going to do. And we work and work our plan and work it and work it and work it until finally we realize, as Abraham and Sarah did, that our plan is insufficient, that we cannot produce an Isaac without the power of God. And we must bow in humility to him. Here's the second, sincerity. Sincerity. This speaks of our motive. What is the motive of our prayer life? Is it, is, is it for our own comfort, our own ease? Is it for our own enrichment? Or is it for the glory of God? We must come to the Lord sincerely in insincerity. Here's another guiding principle, consistency. Consistency. In Luke chapter 11, we're taught to ask, to seek, and to knock. What is, that, what is that picture? That is a picture of consistency. Do you know the thing that is important to you is something that you will continue to ask God for? And by the way, God knows the moment we ask him how important it is to us. But God reveals to us through our inconsistency how unimportant it truly is to us. You know, we're, we're hot on the trail for two or three days. And then later on, something overtakes our, you know, and now we don't have the burden for that lost soul that we once had. We don't have the burden for our kids like we once had. Inconsistency. So may God help us to be consistent. Guiding principles for prayer, humility, sincerity, consistency, charity. Charity. That's a heart filled with love. Love for all. 
who are involved. What mountain stands in your way? What do you desire? Well, that, that boss that's holding up your promotion or that co-worker that's giving you a hard time or that neighbor that you just can't get along with no matter what you do or that child or that loved one, that relative, whoever it is that's providing the mountain in your life, do you desire good for them? Are you praying for God's will for them? The Bible says pray for your enemies. Love them. Pray for them who despitefully use you. You got a list of those people? If I'm on it, please don't tell me. Pray for them. When's the last time you prayed for them instead of complained about them? If you're going to complain about them, you you better make sure you're praying for them. Charity. Here's the last one, sovereignty. Sovereignty. We can have confidence in his sovereignty. What does that mean? It means in his power and in his wisdom to judge what's best. Now, if he's sovereign, what what must we do? We must submit. Jesus provides us with a great example of that. When in the garden, he says to his father, not my will but thine be done. He accepts that his portion is to drink the cup of sin. He yields to the will of the father. He submits himself to his will. Sovereignty. Are you and I willing to say that God is good, that God is right, and we're going to allow him to make the decisions for our lives? Are we going to submit to them? These guiding principles prevent us from missing the mark in our prayers. Someone has said, prayer focuses on honoring God's name, advancing his kingdom, and accomplishing his will. You say, that's good. Where'd they get that? Matthew chapter 6. Prayer focuses on honoring God's name, advancing his kingdom, and accomplishing his will. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you pray that prayer or do you say, Lord, I need this today and I need this today and I need this today and I need that? You see, our prayer lives need to be adjusted. Someone also has said this, when prayer is the source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. Let me read that again. When prayer is the source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. The only thing that filters my prayers, whether they're granted or not, is the will of God. And if I'm submitted to the will of God, if I'm desiring what God is desiring, if I'm trusting not in my ability, but in his ability, and I'm yielded to him and his sovereignty, then I can believe that God will answer my prayer. I can have what I ask. I may not have it in the time I ask it. I may not have it in the way in which I describe to the Lord, I'd like for him to answer it. But God is faithful. So when I come to God in prayer, I must come to God in faith, believing that God can do the 
impossible. That's mountain-moving faith. So what does the fig tree teach me? It teaches me that fruitfulness is expected. And I will only be fruitful as I'm vitally connected to him, as I abide in him, as I obey him, as his life flows through me, then I will produce fruit. It's not enough to have the leaves. I need the fruit, and the fruit comes from him. I don't have to work up the fruit. It just naturally comes. As I abide in him, I bear fruit, and I learn to exercise faith in him. Faith is to be expressed. I express it to him in my prayers. Nothing pleases God more than to know that we believe in him. There's a third lesson we find, and that is forgiveness is to be extended. Forgiveness is to be extended. If we're going to enjoy fellowship and communion with God, then we have to be forgiving people. Forgiveness is at the very heart of God. It is his nature. When he revealed himself in his glory to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, how did he reveal himself? As a merciful, long-suffering God. Now, the people, remember, had sinned in the matter of the golden calf. The Lord is giving Moses the law on the mountain, and they're breaking the law he's giving them after they just made a covenant that they were going to keep it. And they're involved in idolatrous, immoral, wicked sin. They are deserving of death, and Moses knows it. He's interceding on their behalf. He's praying for God to be merciful. He is asking God then to show him his glory, and God said, I'll show it to you, but here's the way he, show, he demonstrated it to him. He revealed his name to him because no man can see God and live. Remember, he put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he said, I'll pass by. You, my back parts will pass by. You cannot see my face. And when he put him there, what did God do? God said, here's my name. I'm the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Can I tell you that God is a forgiving God? God is not petty. God is not some killjoy in the heavens who watches down over you and say, oh, they blew it again today. I'll tell you what, when, I, when they get up here, am I going to give them the business? No, that's not God. God loves us and he is merciful to us. He is forgiving. Now, there is a difference between forgiveness and justification. Now, forgiveness accompanies justification. But I have been made just by faith in Christ through his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all sin. And as Paul said in, in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation. I do not have guilt. I do not have the payment of sin. I, I do not have that stain upon me because it has been cleansed and removed by the blood of Jesus. Not only that, but at the same time, I have the royal uh, record of Jesus imputed to my account. Now, how would you kids like to go to school and you're concerned, hey, I'm making a C in this class. My test grades aren't good. 
I certainly don't deserve an A. But you get your report card only to find that you got an A. And you say, well, how did I get that? Well, you didn't earn it. Jimmy gave it to you. Jimmy did the work for you. Jimmy passed the test for you. You're going to go thank Jimmy, aren't you? Because it's really not your record, it's his. Now, let me tell you this. Concerning our record with God, it's not our record that God sees. It is the record of his son that he sees. His righteousness has been imputed to our account. We do not deserve it. It is by his mercy and his grace he's imputed it to us. I've been justified. My sins are forgiven. I cannot lose my salvation. I'm sealed into the day of redemption. I'm in the palm of his hand. Nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus. I can't lose it. But I can, as a believer, sin against him. And when I sin against him, I do not lose his righteous record. But I will tell you what happens. There is a breach in our fellowship. There is a breach in our fellowship. And if I confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness and to restore me back into the right fellowship with him. Now, here's what Jesus said in verse 25. When you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you forgive your trespasses. Do you know what can hinder the fruitfulness in our life? Do you know what can hinder faith in our lives? What can choke the fruit? What can dry up the branch? It is a heart full of unforgiveness. You see, Forgiveness is the very nature of God, and we are his children made in his image. And when we harbor unforgiveness in our heart, I'm talking about grudges, I'm talking about bitterness, I'm talking about we can't get over the past and how somebody hurt us, you know, they did us wrong. We weren't treated fairly. And oftentimes we can handle it when it happens to us, but when it happens to our kids, that's a different story. And I'm going to tell you what, the flesh flies all over us, doesn't it? And we have flesh fits. And we might try to forgive, but we'll never forget. You see, we bury the hatchet, but we leave the handle out. And the Lord said to them, wait a minute. All this bitterness, all this vitriol, all this enmity and rivalry that's taking place among my people here in Jerusalem, it displeases God. And what's happening in America and what's happening in many churches displeases God. And if there's unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, it displeases God. You say, well, you don't know how much they wronged me. You're right, I don't. But in light of the wrong that we did Jesus on Calvary when he bore in his body our sins, nobody has ever offended us to that degree. And yet he forgave us. 
And though we sin against him each day, he has promised that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad he doesn't have a book up there with a record of all your sins since you got saved? Listen, if any one of us stood here while that book was open, if it existed, there wouldn't be one among us who would want to ever see one another again because we'd be filled with such shame. And we're so quick to give mercy to some but not to others. When we need it, we're happy to receive it. But when others need it, we're not happy sometimes to extend it. And so unforgiveness is one of the great hindrances to Christian growth, to fruitfulness, and to faith. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter asked the question, Lord, if my brother sin, if he offend me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Then he speaks the parable concerning the servant who owed a great debt and he had no means to pay the debt. He was obligated to pay it. He deserved to go into the debtor's prison. He went unto his Lord. He begged for mercy. His Lord, his master, had compassion on him and forgave his debt. Having secured the forgiveness of that debt, that man goes out and finds somebody who owes him. He says, you pay up. The man says, I can't. The man says, you will, or I'll throw you into prison. And the man said, I can't. Be merciful. And the man said, no, I won't. I'm going to have you thrown into prison. And he does. Well, the Lord, the master, heard about it. Verse 32 of Matthew 18, Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant. You know how God speaks concerning people who are full of unforgiveness and bitterness? O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant? Even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when we lock people up in the prison of unforgiveness? We're like Barney Fife. We lock ourselves in the cell with them. We think we're pretty clever. We've... We've, we've, we've lured them into the cell. We pull the doors shut. We tell them, never going to forgive you, buddy. I'm never going to forget what you did to me. We tell everybody we know about it too, only to find out that it really is us who's in the prison. The prisoner's actually on the other side of the bars. We're the one in jail. John Phillips wrote, an unforgiving spirit is a great hindrance to effective prayer. So are our many other trespasses. An unforgiving spirit hinders God's forgiving us of our own failings and failures 
and so blocks, so blocks the answer to our prayers. We'll see that mountain moved. Well, God said, wait a minute, you've got some things to deal with if you want that mountain moved. And so may the Lord help us to be forgiving. Well, let's think about what this means. I think we should ask ourselves some questions. Are we bearing any fruit? You know in your heart. You know. Examine your own heart. Are you like the fig tree demonstrating signs of life with the outward appearance of leaves in the absence of the fruit? Are you abiding in Christ or are you drying up at the root? Do you ever feel dry? May God help us to learn to abide in him. How's your prayer life? What mountains are in your path? Do you ever question why they're there? Perhaps it's to increase your faith. By revealing your inability while revealing his ability. Perhaps they're there in your path to produce fruit in your life. Perhaps they're there to reveal the unforgiveness in your heart. Perhaps they're there to stimulate faith in your heart and to reinvigorate your prayer life. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.